pride spoils community, Mike Reeves writes. Pride spoils community. And I'm thinking about this, thinking about spoiling community, I, I began to think about spoiled milk. I also think about eroding community, of, of having a community, having a family, having a marriage, a relationship, maybe a context of friendships, and that eroding like sand being eroded by a river makes me think of the things that erode it. And, and what are those things? Well, pride spoils it. That's what Mike Reeves is just making the point of straight forward. But what else? Like, what else does that entail? What does that look like for a slow erosion of community or maybe a big pop that explodes and destroys community? Self-centeredness? Selfish agendas where it's, it's, it's only mine, it's my way, the highway, that kills community, right? Bitter, bitterness, bitter backbiting, sarcasm, harshness. When someone's speaking to you and your response to them is a harsh, short word. When your desires become demands. Or, or maybe, like, like so many before us, Bonhoeffer said that we, we have idealistic expectations. We read the scripture and we see what community can be and what God calls us to. And then we go to a church, to a people, to a community, and then experience what community is, and we're like, that's not it, and get disillusioned and walk away. What also can erode community is indifference and passivity. And I was just thinking about all the manifold <laughs> uh, sitcoms over the past 30 years that are about the context of friendships and whatever thwarts or threatens the the friend group are usually these things. Self-centeredness, harshness, passiveness, indifference, idealistic expectations, and we walk away or community solely erodes or explodes. But Christianity paints a different picture of community. <laughs> a life-giving, thrilling, difficult lovely, messy picture of community, but it's a community of grace, a culture of grace. And that's what we see explicitly in this text this morning, a culture of grace. Like, what does it look like to live together as a people? How can people who are still sinners live together and really care for another and operate as a family, Ephesians 4. That's the answer. So look at it with me. Ephesians 4, first six verses. I'll just look at the first. I'll read the first three. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, 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 I, the prisoner in the Lord, that's Paul, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now remember, Paul is writing 
this to the church in Ephesus while being a prisoner in Rome for preaching Jesus is Lord. And this, therefore, so I said it three times, is the hinge this whole book swings on. We pivot from what God has done for us in Christ. And now we pivot to how are, to we, how are we to live in Christ? How are we to follow Christ? Because all of this is true. Because all this is what God has done for you. Because this is the gospel flow. That This is who God is. This is his character. Then he acts out of his character, sends Jesus, makes you a new creation. And then what? You live out of that new identity. That's where we're pivoting. He's told us in the first three chapters that we have received, been gifted by the Father, every spiritual blessing. Every. Chapter 1, he said that entails in love he chose us and adopted us and forgave us and now indwells us. He saved us to himself and he saved us to a new community, a family where hostility and division has been torn down by Jesus. And we are one. So this is who we are. So we live it out. I urge you. That's plural. I urge y'all, y'all. Right? You're welcome. I urge all y'all, everyone, to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now, walk, that, that's a familiar uh, uh, phrase, word from the Old Testament. But it, it means how you conduct your life. How do you live? So you're to walk worthy of the calling you have received. You are to live worthily. You are to operate. You are to conduct yourself. You are to organize your life and your rhythms and your habits in a way that matches, that, that comes up to the calling you've received. Meaning, if you've become, if you've been called a child, don't live as an orphan. If you've been called a child, embrace your brothers and sisters. If you've been forgiven, don't live wallowing in shame and guilt. If you've been forgiven, forgive your brothers and sisters. If you've been freed by the truth, don't live as a liar and deceiver. If you've been freed by the truth, speak truthfully. Speak honestly with your brothers and sisters. I urge you, beg you, to walk worthy of the calling you have received. And then he unpacks the specifics. What do you mean? What, what, could, what does it look like to walk worthy? And when he unpacks these specifics, you know what he's doing? He is graciously and winsomely unpacking the character of the Christ. He essentially, yes, he essentially unpacks the character of Jesus. 
Or again, years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus is teaching his disciples to be like himself, humble and lowly. Walk worthy of the calling to receive. What does it look like? Walk like your master. What did he walk like? How did he conduct his life? How did he live? Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, says, what is the incarnation but Jesus' heavenly humility? His emptying himself and becoming a man. What is his life on earth but humility? His taking the form of a servant. And what is his atonement but humility? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And what is his ascension and his glory but humility exalted to the throne and crowned with glory? In Philippians 2, we see clearly that Jesus is the humble one. In Matthew 11, we see clearly that Jesus is the gentle and lowly one. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul talks about Jesus has extraordinary patience for him. Jesus loves and loves and loves and loves, and his perfect love is seen at the cross of Christ. And Ephesians 2 tells us that he's not a peacemaker. He's the peacemaker. So can you imagine this? Can you imagine this community? A family who walks like their leader, their bigger brother, their savior, a family who's humble and gentle and patient and loving. If you can imagine that, that's heaven. And we get to taste it now in this family. You can run away from the church and wait to experience this until heaven, or you can saddle up in this messy thing that is the people of God trying to follow Jesus together <laughs> and get a taste of heaven here. Not this building, us. So then think about it, or may I say it differently, chew on this, chew on these words. When he says, conduct your life, chew on these things. He says, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another love, and uh, working hard to keep unity, right? So let's talk about each one. Just slow down and say, what will this look like with me? What needs a change in me? Humility. Greek philosophers and teachers of this day sometimes spoke of the importance of gentleness. Sometimes. So during this day, the Greek philosophers, the, the teachers of the day, they sometimes speak of gentleness as a virtue. But rarely, if ever, extolled humility and patience. So this is a very countercultural thing. Paul's not just picking up kind of the vibes of the day and say, yeah, we should also be humble. No one else is saying we should be humble and patient. No one else is saying that. Sound familiar? No one else really around us is saying, hey, in life, in this world, at your job and with your family and in this country, let's really go for humbleness. 
Let's really be patient with the other people. What? You know, the people across the aisle. The people with different worldviews than us. Sounds very familiar. But humble means, in essence, we're here to serve others. That's the attitude. How do I say that? That's what Paul says in Philippians of Jesus. Philippians 2, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Put it on. Take it on. Do nothing. Now, I love that because I think initial pushback is, well, what about me? How am I going to be cared for? Who's going who's to care for my interests? Okay. Well, number one, I think you're already answering my statement, pride spoils community. You've already made this all about you, right? But number two, can you imagine if this is happening? Let's just break it down to a smaller community, just your community group. If everyone in that group was just looking to the interest of others, was like, how can I help you? What's going on with you? How can I love you? How can I pray for you? But if that's all happening, then all of us are getting it. This is the beauty of heaven. <laughs> this is the beauty of tasting it right now but rather to the interest of others. Now, what I love here also, when he impacts this humility, he says, with all humility. Like, you, you can't have this, he's not wanting this self-righteous attitude towards four people, but I'm humble with most. And with all humility, now think about all humility. Uh, Kayla and I, when we do premarital counseling, when I do counseling, uh, often talk a lot about universal statements. And, the terror that they incur, right? When you're like, you always do this. You get in a fight with your spouse. You're like, you always leave this stuff over here. You never do this. And we always tell couples, hey, 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 <laughs> calm down. And let's just make a rule never to say those things, okay? Let's make a universal statement of you should never say you never do this or you always do this, right? That should be the, the rule you make. But what's happening here, can you imagine? Can you imagine in your household? Can you imagine in your relationships, maybe a conflict, maybe a fight, maybe a, one of those stupid marriage fights that started about a pan, then it turned into, hey, are we even good for each other? You know those fights? <laughs> what if the universal statements were, ah, you're always humble. You're never harsh. You're always gentle. You're always tender. <laughs> you always fight for unity. How amazing would that be, right? If that's what's happening in your, our relationships, in your relationships, in all of our relations, how beautiful would that be? You always respond with humility. You're always gentle and kind and tender. You're always patient with me. Thank you. Now, when you think about humility... It gets real messy real quick. You start talking about humility, then it turns into pride, right? So here we go. The classic from Keller. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he says, 
the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. That's why it makes sense when Peter says in 1 Peter 5 to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, right? Not humility as in I'm going to think and try to be more humble and, and I'm going to be humble, humble, humble and I think about humble and I'm going to think about humility. I'm going to think, am I humble, more humble than I used to be? No. What I'm going to do is set my gaze upon the risen Christ and before him and his majesty, what do I do? I fall down because he's the reigning and defending ruler of the world and he loves me. So I'm going to bow before him. I'm going to humble myself before him. And with his people, I'm going to humble myself before them. I'm going to work and walk with them with all humility. Now, gentle. Gentle. Similar to humility, but this is meek, right? The meekness, not weakness. This is not timid. This is not fear. But what it is is tender and self-controlled. That's what gentle means. That you, you relate to others with tenderness and self-control. They do something. You may get angry. You don't lash out. Why? Because you're gentle enough that you've learned self-control. That yes, there's there, but I'm not going to turn this into an action against them. I'm actually going to control myself. And I know, talk about gentleness and humility, even though for two years we've talked about Matthew, Matthew 11. And Jesus saying, this is his very heart. The only time Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain and shows you his heart, he says it's gentle and lowly. And even saying that for two years, some men in this room were like, Ugh, really, is that what I'm called to? Because I, I keep listening to this podcast and Joe Rogan keeps telling me to go hard and get bigger and fight more, right? So should, should I do this? Should I be humble and gentle? Is this real life? I let a guy from the 1800s who was born in Africa tell you. This is what Andrew Murray says again. Men sometimes speak as if humility and meekness would rob us of what is noble and bold and manlike. You hear me? Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, that this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed, that this is godlike, to humble oneself to become the servant of all. And in that didn't address your objection, God says in Isaiah 66 to men, if you're still pushing back, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, broken in spirit, and trembles at my word. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we're talking about humility and gentle and patient what's this patience we're to walk worthy with patience well patience is slow to anger as god speaks of himself in exodus 34 he's long suffering means he suffers with people for a long period of time that's what we're called to to suffer and be patient with people for a long long time understanding we're all growing slowly right? 
We're all at the gym, but at different stages, and that's okay. That's what the church is like. It's like a gym. It's like a hospital with an in-hab rehab center with also a gym, and it's also kind of a mission outpost to, to declare and push back darkness and declare the risen Christ's name, right? It's all these things. But think about a gym, right? Are you mad at the people that are working out? They're not as fit as you are, so you're mad at them that they're there? Should they go work out somewhere else? Where do you want them to, to get more healthy? That's the same thing with the church. Why are we, why are, why are, why are we so easily called a, a bag of hypocrites? Well, because humanity as a race is a bag of hypocrites. And secondly, is because some of us just signed up for the membership, Right? It's our second day in. We're learning this. We're trying to grow. And it takes time. And with that understanding, that's patience with one another. Bearing with one another in love. So if you're patient with maybe someone's slow growth or patient with their repeated failures or patient with them hitting their head against the wall when you said, just try this one thing, right? read your Bible and they're like, never read it. You talk about all this stuff and come back to it. Hey, you should read the Bible consistently. Uh, run away from it. Don't, don't get into it. Right? You can be patient with them. But then bearing with one another in love is different. It's an attitude of love that bears with the faults and irritating personality quirks of others in the church. You know those things that grate on your nerves that make you feel a little raw and like, ugh. Those things. To have an attitude of love for that person. So it's that. that the, the personality, the quirks, the things that are off, that, that's, I'm going to bear with them even though they're mad quirky, a lot different than me. Say these things. Act this way, right? But also, Peter tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And that's also what Paul is saying here. That maybe they sin, it's a one-off. Maybe they're not conscious of it. Maybe it's relatively small. But you can let small things go in love. That's what he's saying. Love covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean hiding or covering over people's grotesque, uh, severe things that are in public, repetitive, uh, uh, sinful behavior that they're stuck in. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying these, these one-off things like, because can you imagine if I confronted you on everything? I don't think that's loving. If I never confronted you on anything, that's also not loving. So that's what he's saying. He's saying there's things that I'm, I'm not going to confront you on everything. There's going to be things that happen. I'm like, love covers it. Love covers it. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, says, only those who are humble can consistently identify evidences of grace in others who need adjustment. It's something the proud and the self-righteous are incapable of. So when he talks with all, with all humility, it really builds on itself. That's why I'll keep coming back to humility. 
But if you're humble and you see someone's quirks, faults, sin, you can serve them. If you're self-righteous and arrogant and putting your hope in your accomplishments or what you achieved or in your identity that you've created, <laughs> you're not going to love them. You're not going to serve them. You're not going to humbly point them to Jesus. You're probably going to look down on them, demean them, and point them to you. Like, if you want a better life, you should recreate yourself into my image. That's what the pride do, the proud do. So bearing with one another. Then lastly, he says, working hard to keep unity or making every effort. Now that language, uh, that phrase is just one word in the original language, and it was typically used uh, for the effort and work involved with an adventure and a journey. So he's saying work hard, exhaust your resources to keep our unity. Let's be clear, not create our unity, but keep it. Because we have unity. Again, Ephesians 2, 14 says, Christ is our peace who made both groups one. So he made it, he created it, he's joined us, he's united us, but then we work hard to keep it and experience it. Make every effort to reconcile, to forgive, to live at peace with all, if, uh, if at all possible. Make every effort to stay united. To be on the same road, uh, what Eugene Peterson says, that, that long obedience in the same direction together. Making every effort to stay together and be together and keep inching forward more and more towards Christ so that we would look like and act like and be like and love like him. With all this, though, it's such a, a big, robust picture of a gracious community. It's beyond our reach. We can't do this by ourselves. We need the Spirit of God to empower us to reach for this. We need the Spirit of God to turn away and pivot from the things that aren't this so that we actually live this. Tony Morita writes it this way. We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. So hear me. Can you make that black, Ben, real quick <laughs> before you read it and not listen to me? This, this renouncing means I'm not asking you to try to pick up humility, pick up gentleness, pick up patience. What it means is that first you've got to let go of this self-righteousness and arrogance and harshness and bitterness and selfish uh, agendas. You actually have to let go, drop. That's what he says in Ephesians 4, chapter 5, Colossians 3 to put off, to put away, and put on. That's what he's calling you. That's what he's calling us to do. And so I want you to hear this quote with that. Okay? Renounce. We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must renounce harshness in order to walk with gentleness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in forbearing love. 
we must renounce indifference and passivity in order to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The church is unified and God is glorified when we live with such Christ-like conduct. Renounce, turn, and whatever it is. If it's that arrogance and pride that is suffering you to actually engage with others with all humility. If it's the rushedness of like people have to change on the spot, I told them once they should get it, we must turn from that and engage with them with patience like the Lord has been with us. We must turn from these things. Learning new skills, learning a new way of life without turning from the old is confusing and impossible. Did you hear me? So put off the old habits, put off the old ways of thinking, put off the old attitude that you had towards your brothers and sisters and put on the mind of Christ. And so that's the thing we must renounce. But can I just try to tell you again of what this could look like? How could we imagine to see this, what, what this doesn't? And I, I, I read this, that what I'm about to read, uh, uh, with great joy as I think about it and I see it. And great joy as I think this is what the Lord has been doing in us. Does that make sense? This morning, I don't feel like I'm telling you anything that we haven't talked about before, that I haven't seen before, that I haven't seen evidences of grace in us before. And so I'm really grateful, but I also at the same time feel like this. Lord, we want more. We want to walk with each other with more humility and more gentleness and more patience and bearing with one another to endure with people who slap you once to deal with people that sin against you 70 times, to, to endure with people that are quirky and, and irritate you and all get up. Why? Because they're your brothers and sisters that Jesus died to give you. Ed Welch says it this way, imagine an interconnected group of people who entrust ourselves to each other. You can speak of your pain and someone responds with compassion and prayer. You can speak of your joys and someone shares them, shares in them with you. You can even ask for help with sinful struggles and someone's pray with you. Someone prays with you, offers hope and encouragement from scripture and sticks with you until sin no longer seems to have the upper hand. You imagine this? There's openness and freedom, friendship, bearing burdens together and giving and receiving wisdom. No trite responses, and Jesus is throughout it all. We want more of this. That's what I want. I want more of this. More of this for us. More of us, more of it this year in us. That we walk worthy of the calling we received before the Lord and with one another and then he again takes all that he said in chapters one through three where he said therefore all this hinges upon therefore and then really he comes back to it in verses four through six so look at it with me there's one body and one spirit just as you're called to one hope at your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who's above all and through all and in all 
we were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together. I think it's Eugene Peterson who translated this as everything we are and think and do is permeated with oneness. Like that's the point. When he goes through, this is how you're going to live. This is how you're going to operate. This is how you're going to function. This is how you're going to conduct your, uh, your lives together as a, a community. Why? Because you're one. You're united. You're together. You've been bound together. When he says the bond of peace, my mind goes straight to super glue, right? When I watch an infomercial and I see uh, uh, one of those crazy guys all, all hyped up on uh, something, uh, they're all hyped on Mountain Dew. That's what they're, yeah, not a, not a controlled substance. They're all hyped up on Mountain Dew, and they're selling you super glue, right, on commercial. And they, they take three tons, and then they take one little drop of glue, and they melt together, and they say, hey, this, this thing can hold three tons. It's a good imagery, the bond of peace. But better that is what is actually probably happening in Paul where he's in chains, looking down, saying, I'm stuck here. I'm in chains here. On the pro side, that what Paul's taking such a negative and saying on the pro side, that's what it's like to be in the family of God. We're bound together with peace. We have been wrapped together with chains of Jesus' peace. We are one. The Father has made us one. As the Father and the Son are one. We've been pulled into the Trinity's perfect, joyful community. We're one. So that what undergirds all of this effort, all this sweat to, to make every effort to reach for unity, to keep that unity, to experience that unity is all firmly grounded on we are one because there's one Lord. One Savior. One Father who's created everything and one Father who has dreamed up and created this plan of redemption to woo you and pull you into his family. We're one. So if you're not a Christian, you're not united. Like you can't live this therefore out. Right? So if you're not a Christian, you're hearing me, hey, be humble. Hey, be patient with people. Here's the truth. That will be immensely frustrating to you. Because all of this is predicated upon Jesus has saved you, given you a new heart, and made you alive, and empowered you with his spirit to actually go after this. So if you're not a Christian, you need to hear that Jesus loves you and has dealt with you in humility and has been patient with you and has been bearing with you in love your whole life. And in this moment right now, he is gently and lovingly calling you to this hope. Calling you to this life. Calling you to himself. Saying there's one Lord. Put your hope in him. Cry out to him. Turn, pivot away from your sin. Renounce this life, this way of thinking, your, your, your own 
way to achieve and accomplish, to get to whatever desired outcome. Turn from it and turn and put all your eggs in the basket of Easter. Put all your hope in the risen Christ. Now, if you are a Christian, we're to remember our identity in Christ. But in real conflict, you know what we also have to do? You have to remember their identity in Christ. And in real conflict, moreover, we have to remember our identity in Christ. You hear what I'm saying? When you're fighting your, your own sin in your heart, yes, Remember your identity in Christ. When you're in conflict with others, you also need to preach the gospel to yourself that they are new, that they are forgiven, that they are loved, and that might just change how you deal with them. And if you remember our identity, that this is who we are, that will definitely change how we interact and engage with one another. Oh, we're one. Oh, we, we all of us have the same Lord. Oh, all of us have been baptized into this family all of us look at father the one who's (laughs) created us sustained us and saved us we have one hope so we're united and so i say in conflict let me say it this way in opportunity for division in opportunity to split in opportunities to erode community we need to not only remember our identity their identity but also our identity so that we can walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another in love, and sweating, working hard to keep the unity. Pride spoils community, but community can also help quell pride. Pride spoils community, but community can also help quell pride. Father, would you do this in us? And would we join in in what you're doing? And if there is something to repent of, to renounce, to turn from, Spirit, kindly lead us there. We need it. We don't see ourselves correctly. We have blind spots. Sometimes we think we are humble, and it's not happening. And then, Lord, also pray that you would encourage us with the joy of this family, the joy of being together, the joy of being united, the joy of this calling, because it it all goes back to what you've done to us, what you've been to us, how you've approached and related to us. And so, Jesus, what I'm asking is, like every ordinary Sunday. Make us more like you. Your character, loving what you love, following you in sacrificial, loving action toward our brothers and sisters. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.